Hello and welcome to Vista Talks, interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Minta Dial. Uh, Minta Dial is often described as a showman, a storyteller and a prognosticator. Um, he's always in search of experiences and interesting people uh, whose mission is to elevate the debate, connect people, the dots and of course the ideas. Uh, he's also a published author and he's wrote a number of books and we'll get on to that discussion in a little while. So let me introduce you to Minta Dahl. Minta, you're very welcome to Vista Talks today. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be here. I love Vista Talks and I've uh, certainly enjoyed exchanging with you and reading what you do, Simon. Well, thank you very kind, Minta. We're delighted to have you on the Vista Talks show. Um, I'd like you to maybe, if you can, let's start at the top uh, where we normally start on these, which is maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, because I read that, and I know that you have what is termed in inverted commas, a bountiful 16-year international career with L'Oreal, of course. And then you've got all this uh, this book writing going on. I know you're a speaker, you're a digital marketing influencer. So maybe if you could just, uh, for our audience, just give us a little what your background is, what you're involved in now, and then we can we can move on from there. So over to you. Well, I'm a curious chap. Um, and I, I think actually I was wondering I could move from bountiful to bounciful um, because my life is, or at least my professional career, um, has been marked by working in 12 different industries as well as having numerous different types of roles. So in the end of the day, I'm one of those classic jack of all trades, master of absolutely nothing. And, but I've enjoyed being curious and checking out what is interesting in everything I do. And you, you've worked, I, I mentioned uh, one of the organizations that you worked at, but I'm, I also know that you've worked with some big brands and that's particularly interesting to our audience here at Vista Talks. Obviously, Vista Tech works with some of the world's biggest brands, you know, and the most well-known organizations around the world. But just to mention a few, I mean, you've worked with people like Google and Samsung, Remy, uh, Orange, uh, L'Octane, and um, as I mentioned, of course, L'Oreal. So maybe, could you just maybe share a little bit about how you help those brands activate their brand strategy and, you know, I know you're involved in a lot of the digital tool side of things there and strategy. Maybe you could just comment on that a little bit for me. Sure. Well, a part of how I roll is essentially, hopefully, actually knowing how to do what I talk about. And the benefit is I, I can bring to these different types of clients a whole suite of different experiences, whether it's working in a rather classical blue blood investment bank to being a startup or where I... I began a, a travel agency for musicians. I've also worked in, let's say, more government-style roles, working at the Philadelphia Zoo and the New Jersey State Aquarium. So I've got a little bit of a, a spin on that. And, of course, my 16 years at L'Oreal. So one of the things that I really strive to do is not be the type of consultant that I hated when I was working in business. And the first thing you don't do is tell them what to do. You just got to. What I really strive to do is do a lot of listening at the beginning to figure out what is their true problem, which isn't necessarily what they're telling me it is, because sometimes you don't really know what the problem is. If you had such a grip on it, you might be able to find the answer much quicker. So it really entails figuring out what are the challenges and then custom build the answer in the best of cases with the client. So if I take the case of Rémi Cointreau, they came to us with a need to render their sales team more productive. And, and so that was the request. Turns out that there were other issues, including culture inside the company and, and uh, the strategy that they were employing and how to then activate that strategy towards rendering their sales team more productive. And so rather than just say, well, this is what I think you need to do, we worked at it together and the, and the COO was, a, uh, was the prescriptor and hired us and he was absolutely, he embraced that whole process and he led from within and we helped construct a program that we rolled out across the world to help create a unified Remigrantrol, yet adapting it to the specific needs of each region. Take the case of Samsung, 
there I was working with another team and they had said that they wanted to improve their digital marketing for the organization, all divisions around the world. That was my mission. So along with the team that I worked with, we went in and crafted a program that was designed to help the entire team, executive team, understand what are the potentials of digital marketing. But again, when you when I was in a uh, Japan, I had to talk about Line and, and the different social media there. When I was in Moscow, it was about Yandex and Vcontact. And, and, and there are nuances and differences to what you do and, and different maturities with regard to what it is to create engaging content. What are the profiles you need to have to hire to get, get that happening? So completely different from what I was doing at Femi Quattro but looking at what was their need and then providing a customized solution. And that's sort of what I, I strive to do. In the case of sales productivity, I've I worked at L'Oreal in many in, instances running big, big companies, big teams and sales teams. So a good understanding of the sales process. What does it take to make that wonderful marriage between sales and marketing work? And in the case of, of Samsung, the benefit is I'm kind of all over there on social media. I don't have big followings on any, you know, I have decent followings on them, but I actually, in the case of, I speak a good enough Russian and I'm on Vcontact and, and can get by on Yandex. I, I don't speak, my Japanese is not good enough, but in general, I'm, I'm really disposed to figure out what are the local needs and make it happen inside the company, including specifically the human element. Because in the end of the day, whether you're trying to do sales or marketing or whatever, it's figuring out the culture and who the players are and, help, and, and helping to figure out how to make that work better within. Well, yeah, ab absolutely. And you've kind of touched on two really important parts of culture there because you're speaking a little bit about the internal company culture. And sometimes that's a big challenge, isn't it, for a, a global brand? Um, and it, yet that global brand is also trying to reach into other cultures around the world. And sometimes when you have a challenge both with your internal culture and a lack of understanding of an external culture that you're trying to communicate your products or services to, it becomes near and impossible to succeed or to scale in that environment. And I'm just wondering, just to build on your, your comments there, obviously we've, we've gone through a, a pretty uh, different time in our history with the recent pandemic. And, you know, to, to large uh, parts of the world, we're still going through it. How much has culture been a, been a play in that space now? And I, I say that from a Vistec perspective, where a lot of companies that we work with, if they were far along on a digital transformation curve, if they were already active in the e-commerce space, if they were thinking uh, from a multilingual perspective uh, initially, it's been much easier for them to make the change. But we've also been working with some very large organizations who maybe were more traditional bricks and mortar. They were, you know, they weren't born on the internet companies, but they are huge global brands. And we've had to work with them very quickly in an agile manner to turn that around. And how do, how do you see the, the culture playing into that? Because some of the boards and some of the people in some organizations are so used to doing something a particular way. And this pandemic sort of upended that a little bit, hasn't it? Oh, that's for sure. So, um, I think that the whether you are digitally transformed or not, there is a base issue of culture and what type of culture you have. Because when you moved into the pandemic, there were two important components. One is what business are you in? And two, learning how to remote work. So you could be digitally transformed, have 25% uh, of your business now through e-commerce, and, and you might suggest a big Twitter profile or whatever, and you're, you're really switched on to social media, but that does not at all mean you know how to work remotely. So you might've got this maybe more digitally switched on attitude, but to what extent have you developed a high level of trust amongst all of your teams and stakeholders? Because it doesn't mean because you got digital that you're trustworthy doesn't mean you're great on Twitter, that you are trustworthy. <laughs> Sometimes one might even argue the alternative. So 
if you're in the industries that were benefiting from this and had e-commerce, then you had an easier path. But yet, do you still need to know how to work with a remote distributed team? And, and that in, in involves also in this pandemic, learning how to accept our personal space. And if you don't have a culture that's accepting of people turning up maybe unshaven where they always are shaved, cats in the background, not always feeling great, mental health issues, sounds that come into the room that are unprofessional, then you, you may find that not going very well in terms of the ongoing work relationships. And, and the final piece is that regardless of whether you have the right culture, digitally switched on or whatever industry, have you got what it takes to give everybody extra energy? And, and typically the answer to that must fall in, do you have a purpose, a bigger why to your organization than just making shareholders rich? No, um, and an excellent point because, um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, finding their why now, don't they? And particularly from an organization perspective. And um, when it comes down to the purpose, it, it's interesting, isn't it? The the, the for many, many years, um, the city and the boards and the companies, the responsibility has been ultimately to the shareholders. And, you know, there's, a, there's been a, a responsibility uh, to deliver back to the shareholders. But more and more, and I'm not quite sure whether it's a mix of um, just the way things are now with a fast, agile pace of information and communication around the world, whether it's, you know, younger generations coming through and demanding change. But it is no longer okay for a brand to stay away from those topics and to just focus on the money because people want to work with somewhere that has a purpose, has a mission, has a soul uh, and has a passion. And uh, we're seeing that more and more, right? Well, so on the first point, I think it's been fascinating to see how this idea of purpose has become more generalized. And my belief is that that has come from us sitting around in our bedrooms about to go to the office, which is one and a half meters away, and and pondering in our save time, why am I bothering making this one and a half meter leap to my office? What is going on? What is it really exciting to sell these widgets? How am I making the world a better place? Because boy, there are people dying out there, shit is happening, and here I am selling these widgets. And, and so a lot of people are considering that gap between the bed and the desk, that one and a half meters, I, I jest, but that's sort of the allegory that's here. And, and if, you, if you can answer that why, the leap is much easier. No, for sure. And of course, I mean, your vantage point, if we just go back to your, your sort of corporate uh, viewpoint, as you're on the executive committee worldwide for L'Oreal, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So obviously you, you see that from an international perspective on one, on one hand, but I now know, I know, I now know that you focused an awful lot on leadership and transformation. Mm -hmm. um, and so the last, like has the last 12, 18 months been just chaotic for Minter Doyle? Uh, have you been inundated with people having to transform? Or is it, is it business as usual? All right, well, so I just want to circle back, Simon, on one thing, which is yeah. with regard to the, the way the city is operating, because sure. I, I, I think one of the challenges we have is translating purpose and widem, let's call it why, into financial gains that the city is prepared to invest in. And until such time as the city actually understands that they too have a legitimate purpose and that they dial into their own purpose, we're going to be doing a lot of yes, yeah, yeah, sure kind of attitude. Because let's say for the vast majority of people in private equity, venture capital and on the city, they're still really only interested in how much my stock goes up. And, and, and the, the why thing is nice to have, but let's just, you know, as soon, as soon as you fill my, my expectations, then, oh, let's talk about why, why not? It's almost an afterthought. Because, I mean, basically, banks, insurance companies 
have completely lost the plot as far as what their purpose and their why is. And, and the, the way for them to sort of say, uh-huh, wake up and smell the roses is to what extent would the world be worse off if you, bank or insurance company, didn't exist? Would yeah, some just competitor to just come in and take over your job? Or would the world be worse off? And I think that the answer to that, they haven't answered it properly. And so until we can get them to do it mm. for themselves, can we really understand what it's all about and how that can actually generate a more engaged workforce that aren't just there for the bonuses, but are really keen to do stuff for their clients, like you and me, then... Yeah, I know. I, I, I hear you. And it, it, I, mean, I will come back to the previous point, but the, just on this, uh, people, people are quite prepared to call companies out now. You see an awful lot more of this being called out. And I think there's a general awareness and a growing um, unease when a company is just box ticking. I just don't think that cuts it anymore. You know, I, I think less and less organizations are able to get away with that. That doesn't mean it's not going on. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not naive. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. The, and it goes back to, if you think about the purpose of a business, I don't want to get too uh, philosophical on it, but a business ultimately, you know, it supports its customers and it makes money, but it was also supposed to take care of the workers and its community and to give back. And we've kind of lost our way on that a lot, haven't we? I, absolutely. And I think in the news, one has seen that Amazon, where Bezos is moving over from no longer being CEO, he, he recently said after the, the union victory that he uh, triumphantly had, he said, well, we need to do better with the employees. And, and there's a company that I, I can say feels that they had a purpose. However, they have the wrong purpose in my mind. Let me explain. The purpose that they gave or it seems to be their mission, which is to be the world, the earth's most customer-centric company in the world. You know, so customer-centricity tick, great idea, right? Because you know, the customer pays the bills. Yet the question then becomes, how does that resonate with their employees? So I'm in a warehouse working my butt off, getting these packages in the correct, correct box. What does that mean for me? as an individual walking up and down the warehouse? How does being the earth's most customer-centric company benefit Minter, the warehouse worker? And the answer to that is scratch my head, good luck. And so where I think a, a real purpose is strong is when it, it resonates and is effective, valuable to all of the stakeholders and it, it improves them. So then your charge is to delimit to whom you need that mission to resonate to. But if you, if you leave out the employees, then there'd be no worry or no wonder, sorry, that you'll have employees possibly striking or getting upset at the conditions in which they're working because it just doesn't do them more than just pay for their bills. Of course, they have Amazon on their CV and that I know many companies that have, said, well, that's just fine. You know, I'm, I'm giving them a good name on a CV, but the problem is ultimately what you're not doing is tapping into the discretionary energy and making them feel better about themselves in the world. Which is a, a huge um, stakeholder miss for lots of organizations, isn't it, unfortunately? Well, you would, you would, you would, it, I mean, because like being customer centric was a big miss before. Yeah. We got so struck, uh, stuck on, on being profitable. We've got to make the performance, got to get the shareholder price in. Fine. Oh, well, it turns out the customer is important. So let's, get, let's focus on the customer. Well, it turns out, and, and this is really mostly relevant. I mean, it's always been relevant, but in the last 15, 20 years, really, we've seen the, the, that the interactions between company and client has demultiplied, where you have so many more different types of interactions thanks to the internet. So you now have many more people in your organization interacting with customers via digital tools, surely, in large part. And therefore, it's your employees who are delivering the customer experience. You can't just rely on, a, on a, an automated system. You've got to have somebody who's typing in messages into the keyboard that's going out and touching people. And if the individuals who are doing those typing or calls or chats, bots, whatever, aren't 
really engage themselves, then the customer experience is going to fall down. So you do have to really dial into the employee. And then for me, the, the, the overarching mission is the one that drives the extra energy at the employee level to go and deliver that customer experience, to go and provide you with that superior performance at the end of the day. Yeah, and there's, there's a saying that comes to mind uh, in, in the VistaTech world, which is if they can't understand it, they won't buy it. And we often refer to that purely from a product and service perspective, meaning if you're working across international borders, if, you're, if your audience can't understand it, they're not going to buy it. Uh, but it's the same as well, isn't it, with the, the corporate mission and the purpose and the strategy. And when you, when you go back to your, one of the points you're making at, at the start was about when you've got different cultures and languages involved and different communities who are all part of the same organization, but they're dispersed around the world. And then you add in this complexity layer of all these new tools and video platforms that we're all engaged in now. Uh, getting that purpose and that leadership right uh, from a cultural perspective becomes even more important, doesn't it? It's, it's kind of like critical. Uh, it's always been yeah. important, but it's without that now, you're going to be in real trouble. Yeah, it's moving from what's written on the wall into a de facto felt experience at the yeah. most yeah. granular levels. And you're so right to point out the issue of translation. Uh, and at L'Oreal, we, we had this mission, which is because you're worth it for the overall org organization. Yeah. yeah. But then within my, my, the brand that I ran, called Redkin, the hairdressing brand, we had a mission which was earn a better living, live a better life. And, and certainly in the L'Oreal world, that wasn't exactly something that was easy to do for the employees. But we made it happen within Redkin. But then the challenge is taking that from the United States into other countries. And so when you start talking about earning a better living in some cultures, well, it's a little bit gauche to talk about salaries or how much you, how much you make. It's, let's say, a more common consideration in the United States, but less attractive or, or even palatable in many other cultures. So you absolutely have to be sensitive to how your mission translates into other organizations. Otherwise, you can be you know, considered a, a jingoistic, you know, my way or the highway kind of person, and that doesn't gain engagement. Absolutely. And so going back to the point we, we sort of skipped over earlier, I was kind of asking you about the last 12 or 18 months. I know you're really busy. You're interviewing people all the time. And I want to talk to you about that as well, because you're, you're meeting some fantastic people. I want to get into the books and the film stuff as well. Um, but just in terms of your own personal experience over the last 12, 18 months, is it just crazily busy? Is it business as normal, like from, from the mint to dial perspective? How, how right. Is so my main uh, gantin way I make money is by speaking. And without doubt, my speaking career took a nosedive because I had planned, I had all these other gigs. I had pretty major contracts to go out and speak in Asia many, many times. And so all the, and specifically in China. So that had all been planned out. Nothing just dropped back and said, oh, mint, I can't wait to have you on Zoom. The, the whole process of shifting into online speaking, which A, requires a certain skill set, not to mention technology, but also is very different in terms of delivery for companies and what you're trying to achieve. So I managed, it was very painful to begin with, certainly. I did have the benefit of, of working on a book, so I had plenty of things to do. I certainly didn't have a bunch of people saying, oh, Minter, we need to have more purpose in my company. What I did get, and which really took up the bulk of the second half of the year, was, oh, Minter, we need a lot more energy in my team. And the call and cry for energy, of course, came from the fatigue, the overwhelming isolation that so many people were feeling. But for me, it also smacks to um, a little bit of too much widget making, not enough purpose making. Because when you have purpose, then it becomes a well of energy. When you don't have a good, strong purpose, then you, you kind of have to make up for it by working more or trying to compensate for cultural issues or other difficulties that come in. So that, that was my experience. It wasn't a wholly fun experience, but I've, 
I love the challenge of moving from a, a person who speaks in real life, thinks of theater on stage, to figuring out how to have theater within the little box that is my Logitech camera and uh, making sure I was appropriately equipped with the lighting and, and making the most of this rectangular experience for everybody, which means including all the tools you can get. You know, there, there's some phenomenal tools out there. So having the liberty, if, if, it were, if it were given, to engage with the audience in a way to optimize each experience online so that they really feel you can actually, you can make a supremely great engaging experience online, but it's not the same as doing it in real life. So you have to know how to adapt. Yeah, it's interesting. I've been talking to a lot of people recently about how, say over the last year, I, I, I'm starting to buy into the concept that as, as a species, we're, we're a lot more receptive now to just pure audio inflections and visual cues on video a lot more than we used to be because we are, we are missing out on a lot of the, um, the real world experience, you know? And then there was that report that came out of Stanford, which touched on the fact that, you know, it sort of said that the reason why you are fatigued on video calls is because you spend half the time looking down the lens of the camera and half the time looking away at yourself on the other screen. And then people sort of said, no, that's not correct. And, you know, there was detractors and supporters of that study. Um, but but either way, it's been very interesting to see um, with an online performance perspective, you talk about the stage versus the small digital screen that we're all looking into today constantly. And we, we, we were very privileged recently to hold a five-day uh, Think Global Forum Summit event week, which, you know, I'm involved in the Think Global Forum. And uh, what was really compelling there were actually the speakers. We had the vice president, or one of the vice presidents from Condé Nast, uh, Mel McVeigh, uh, from their um, products and consumer division speaking. And we also had a gentleman called Mark Pollock, who is a, a, an athlete and an explorer, uh, blind in his 20s and, uh, and then paralyzed from the waist down uh, from, uh, following an accident 10 years later. And he's currently on a mission to cure paralysis in his lifetime. But he was talking about the topic of resilience. And um, in addition to that, we also had on-screen yoga which might sound a little bit strange but you know it was the actual not that the the conversations and the business conversations don't get me wrong they were really powerful but the added benefit of having those keynote speakers those different topics those things were maybe a little bit different to the normal expectation they were what made the online experience and i think a lot of organizations have got better at their online experience and better at their online speaking but there's still a gap isn't there between that and the real person on stage no doubt no doubt i mean one of the the um challenges is letting go and where even in real life it's also a case but let go of the energies and 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 allow for the participants to participate because you can either leave them as a sort of a passive audience or you can say they are participating in your event, in which case make it an experience they won't forget. And having drone on and tell you for 60 minutes everything I know, like some intelligent professor or you know, person who thinks he or she is a know-it-all, that is maybe transmitting information, but it's certainly not getting engagement. And so the way to do it for me, and especially in digital, is to take advantage of the fact that we're all congregating online in different places and create an experience. Because in the end of the day, if it's a unique experience, they will always want to talk about it. That's why you go to a concert rather than flipping on an LP, or, you know, in the old days, we, you can listen to a reproduction of what was recorded in the studio at any time. But you're going to bother paying a lot of money to go get in a car, park, go see a concert, I mean, in, in normal times, to go see the exact same band. Why are you going to do that? Are well, you going to do that because something unique is going to happen at that event where you're going to see people, things are going to happen. It could even be at the toilet in the stadium, but then you're going to go running back and you jump on the seat and then all of a sudden they play your favorite song. That elation, that surprise, that oh my godness. And to your point of yoga, when um, last summer I did the podcast festival 
we had a musician begin our event. And you might ask, well, what does a musician have to do with doing podcasts? Well, actually, a musician creates music that's audio. Podcasts are audio. And, and by having uh, the, our, our drummer, Scritti Politi, Tom, uh, come on and, and do his drumming, well, we made everybody move. And so we had an experience that was collective. It was unique. It wasn't reproduced. And it had served no purpose just to do a replay. It was something you had to be there to experience, to live. And I think that is really where the, the juice is in online events. Yeah, it's fantastic. You you mentioned uh, Tom Morley there, and uh, yeah. I know Tom from the the large hats that he wears, and he was a drummer, right, in in the band, and now uh, I think he is the rock star activator, if I'm yeah. not. Absolutely. And he's he's bringing a real energy, isn't he, to events? And I I actually recall the podcast festival that you're talking about as well. And so there you go. Um, it's amazing how those things are coming in to create that energy isn't it and you, you were you were talking a moment ago too about you know the conversation over the last year's change from can you come in and tell us about our culture to can you come and bring a bit of passion and a bit of energy to the room mm, absolutely um, so yeah tom is uh, the incarnation of that and the fact that you remember it simon because i'm sure that you have attended a multitude of events but that one you happen to i'm not saying you, it's the most memorable but you actually remember it and when you are creating these events, whether you're engaging with your employees or with your customers, that's you need to remember these are individuals and, and have yeah. empathy with yeah. them. And being human includes expressing emotions. Mm. It includes dialing into your body and your kinetic, because we're all sitting in our bloody desks all day long, <laughs> staring into a screen. What can you do to break it up, make it interesting? And of course, you have to be careful, because if your culture is normally not at all like that, and you hire a, you know, quote unquote, Tom Morley to do something, it might work, but it might also come off as cheap effort. So I think you need to also be attentive to what your culture is and what are you trying to achieve? Because you can, you can do the, make it funny, haha, but we're not really funny. So you need to be careful on the type of culture you would come into. Yeah, whether, it, whether it fits. Yeah. But I remember that specifically um, because I, if I'm not mistaken, it was kicked off at the very start of the event and it really yes. set the tone. Everybody was kind of, there was a little bit of what's, what's happening here. Yeah. And then everybody got into this sort of festival mood. And I remember, I don't know who said it, but I think one of the organizers might have even been yourself, Minta, said at the time, yeah, this is a, this is a festival, guys. Yeah. You know? And uh, people suddenly went, the culture was connected instantly and people started to ease up and have fun. I was actually speaking at the CMO uh, club yesterday on a couple of occasions and they held their sort of special guest. They didn't even announce who it was until the end. And uh, it was Wycliffe. Um, and it was absolutely amazing because it was unexpected. Right. Um, so a surprise, right? It was a high quality. It was a surprise and people really got into it. And I think, it also, you know, my takeaway as somebody that organizes events from time to time, it created that mental link. And it's that memory that you're talking about. When you mention the podcast festival, I go, yeah, I remember that brand. You know, it's in there. And it's that's so important as well for in an international context when you're talking about product services, people and winning, you know, the cliche, the hearts and the minds, you know. Um, so, yeah, make it make it an experience. Absolutely, absolutely. So look, let me let me move us on if I can. Let, let's move the conversation on. Because I want to talk next a little bit about the books. Uh, where you get in the time, I've no idea. Uh, but correct me if I'm wrong here, but you've, you've already wrote three books. And you've also had, um, you've also produced an award winning book and film. So maybe if you could tell me about the, the three books that have that have happened um and also the film and then i want to come on to your latest book in particular if that's okay so sure so i um i, I went to university in america and i studied literature so i've always had a be in my bonnet about writing i've actually an unpublished novel sitting in the cupboard and have uh, written published probably 200 poems and short stories and yet i always said i had to publish a full book that was that was there so uh, back in 2015, I, I decided that I was going to write as a first book, a book about my grandfather after whom I was named. 
and uh, concurrently do a documentary film about him uh, in, in honor of him and everybody who fought in the Second World War. So it was a very missionary thing. And you talk about finding the time. When you feel like what you're doing is important, not at just a me, me, me level, but doing something for a bigger purpose at the service of other people, it, it, there you can find time for that stuff. And so I went and interviewed 130 veterans that had served in the Second World War. And, and amongst other things, what is important for me is to remind us what's important for everybody and to thank this generation for what they did and to be grateful for the freedoms that we have today and the fact that we don't have it hard. Yes, we have a little pandemic thing going on. Yes, we might have another economic crisis going on, but boy, do we have it good in general and to remember that as well. So that was the mission I had behind the first book, The, the Last Ring Home and the documentary film, which is, you can see it on VOD. It's, it's a 27 minutes um, long film uh, that, that's on television in certain countries. But if you, if you wanna check it out, it's on YouTube and, and a few other uh, VOD locations. Then I, um, I got, uh, wrote a book about disruption in the, the case of Future Proof. And the idea was, well, there's so many technologies, which ones should we be focused on? But with Caleb Storkey, my co-author, actually what we really wanted to do was to change the mindsets. So we had the hook and a lot of my books are, have, a, have a hook. And the hook is we need to figure out technology because we wanna be disruptive. But actually what we're trying to sell underneath that is adopting the correct mindsets in order to install the right culture and create and use the right technologies thereafter. And by the way, chapter number one, about meaningfulness. The third book was, um, I, 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 uh, my best friend killed himself and I felt a need to sort of do some sort of therapy for myself. And so that was a, um, an important moment in my life. And I, I realized that empathy, I've always realized that empathy is, is useful, but I just sort of dialed in. I said, I'm gonna now really focus on is what is an empathy. And my hook was, how do you delegate empathy to artificial intelligence? Because as we know, there's an enormous empathy deficit. So let's just delegate it to AI. Oh, that sounds really appealing and attractive to many people, especially those without empathy. But really the book is all about how do you actually develop empathy within yourself? Because if you're trying to code empathy into AI and you're not empathic yourself, good luck. And those are the, those are the, the, the fairly short, hopefully introduction into the first three books and the film. Uh, wow. I mean, incredible. Uh, I mean, interviewing the veterans must have been mind-blowing and uh, what an experience. I can't imagine what that was like. Um, it, it, I mean, that, that must have been incredi an incredible experience. And also, um, the, the AI thing uh, just makes me think immediately about the way we're all feeding machines at the moment and the, the data sets that we're feeding machines, particularly in the translation world, and in the technology world, uh, you know, it's it's only it's what I was taught years ago when learning all about computers and programming was that it's only as good as the stuff you put into it. And uh, so, so it, you know, it gets into a, a wide, deep topic about you know if you're putting bias in at the front, uh, an unconscious bias in at the front, uh, that's what the machines will ultimately learn. And uh, it's very interesting when you bring the conversation of culture and data sets into machine learning and artificial intelligence. And um, I, we're, look, we're only scratching the surface here. Uh, you know, there's a, we could talk for weeks on this topic alone. <laughs> um, but that, that, that in itself, uh, some, so three very different uh, areas, three very different um, uh, books there, but all actually coming back to a little bit of on empathy, a little bit about compassion, a little bit about the human spirit in all of them, isn't there? Yeah, well, um, the, the human, the human link. I mean, that's really the, the connecting yeah. of the dots. You remember in connecting the dots, what is it about? Well, it's for me, it's really all about being more meaningful. And, mm. and so in, in the last ring home, I talk about the three core values, my three core values, which are love, courage, and honor. And I think that within business, we yeah. could actually do with a lot more love, courage, and honor as well. One, one is related to ethics. One is related to being bold. 
and one is is deep human deepest humanity hope and love and and even though that the book was really focused on the second world war uh, and and some atrocious things that happened it's mm. it's about putting a, elevating the debate putting a better spin on things and when it was future proof and all these technologies let's focus on meaningfulness and responsibility again having our ethics come into play and in artificial inte- artificial yeah. intelligence there's this notion of delegating empathy but you know you mentioned that you know how do you make it happen well many coders are, are typically not prone to be empathic so even as you try to encode that, if you are empathic, you need to understand that your programmers may not be. How do you help them along in that journey so that when you're doing that coding, that bias, if you will, as well, needs to be reworked in order to get to the right data to get to some kind of empathic exchange? And so important in a global context, whether it's the structure of a team, the, the culture, the language, the input, the, the experiences, what people have experienced growing up, where they're from, what their chemical makeup is. And having that, um, that diversity in programming and that diversity in artificial intelligence, um, it's been, that's been something that we've rushed ahead with the technology, but again, we've missed a huge piece here, you know? Mm-hmm. So you end up with, uh, um, I'm, I'm, simplifying it obviously but you end up with almost a lopsided view of, of the technology um but let, let's let's move it on again because that's we haven't we haven't got to the end of the book story here and i wanted to i wanted to talk about this book if you can just bring it up here so this is you lead which is your latest book and i must say it it is fantastic and i mean even on the front cover it says it's a must read if you want to learn the shortest way to the top and leadership it's it's inside yourself and that's from the chairman of the publicist group so that's on the front cover you have a forward by new york times best-selling author mark thompson and the book is about you know how being yourself can make you a better leader so could you maybe tell us a little bit about this asset that we've that we've got inside of us and what brought you to write this this latest book which i know is it's a bestseller. It's doing really well. And um, so congratulations on all the Thank success. You. But maybe could you just take a little bit of time and tell us about, about this? Because this is a real special book. So thank you very much, Simon, for saying that. And it's certainly been a labor of love as well, because I, I really was reflecting, having been in leadership positions, why is it that 70% of employees still today, and probably possibly even more, feel disengaged at work? So we've written a gazillion leadership books, and yet there's the needle hasn't moved with regard to engagement at work, because without engagement, then you're not going to have the best performance. You're going to have, at best, a mediocre average performance, which won't be a long-term success factor. So that's that was the first point. The second point is that I, I've seen in my peers, and maybe it's just because I've gotten older, how many of these leaders who have built up great successes, have hit a brick wall in the middle of their life. They, they have the great country home and the, and the other home. They have the two cars. They have the 2.2 kids. They've got everything they wanted, they think, and yet they're not happy. And when you're not happy, you're not going to be a great leader. You're not going to be an inspiring, uplifting type of leader. And, and Frankly, if you got there, you probably got there using some means and jumping over people, including stabbing a few backs in order to get there. That was the old way of going about things. So you really have today, we're faced with a new way of leading. And this is pre-pandemic, where individuals, now we've got a, a world where we're accepting very many different identities, where individualism is a strong need. Everyone feels like they need to be heard. And by the way, if they're not, they're going to squeak it out on Twitter or somewhere else. So let them feel heard, allow them to grow, give them agency. You're not, doesn't mean you're going to give them directorship or presidency right away because they're 21 years old. They still got to earn their, their creds. Yet we, we as leaders need to understand that it's not the army. You didn't join and you just shut your lip and do what I say. How do, how do you create autonomous individuals that are motivated to do the business, whether they're isolated working at home or not. 
And, and so that's what this book is all about. And the real work has to start with you as an individual. So whether you're the 21-year-old or a 56-year-old uh, successful executive, my injunction is to work on who you are as an individual. And by doing that, where you are able to embrace and accept your vulnerabilities, your imperfections, even your dark side, then you will become a better person. And in so doing, become a better leader because you're going to be more trustworthy. You're going to be more authentic and you'll be more inspiring at a deeper level because you're real, you're understandable. And, and that, that word authenticity is used an awful lot these days, isn't it? We talk, it's, we talk an awful lot about being authentic, but in the, in the book, you talk a lot about the frameworks and about showing up and being your real self and sort of blending that in. So maybe maybe you could expand a little bit on the, the framework of that, because it sounds, yes, of course, but it's not always easy to do that, is it? No, it's not. I mean, so I, I have this framework called the check framework. And the issue with like any words, you can have words and written, put, the, put them on a wall, but it's not because they're on the wall that they're actually understood. And I kind of, I, I, I wanted to bring, and I, I believe I did bring a little twist with each one. And the twist is, designed to make you sit up and say, how can I change a little bit more? I'm not asking for a revolution. For example, we start the first C, which is curiosity. And the vast majority of people listening to this, are, I'm going to have to guess when I ask people in rooms who thinks that they're curious, I generally get a huge percentage of the room lifting their hands. Yeah, I feel I'm, I'm curious, of course. So with regard to that, there are two types is the curious, the endlessly curious. You can't be endlessly curious because you actually have to do shit. If you spend 100% of your time just learning and being curious, well, you'll end up becoming a professor. <laughs> that is a lovely thing, yet not really practical when it comes to running a business. And then there's the other one who's curious just about what I want to learn about. because so I really love this stuff. But it turns out you actually have to be curious about things you might need to know about. And, and so are you actually getting out of your comfort zone, changing your sources of materials on a regular basis, changing and listening to people you don't necessarily like or know, and, and, and leaning into that and that type of curiosity. So that's an example of, of the twist that I try to bring to each of the different elements, these five elements of the Czech framework. Yeah, you remind me of, a, of something that I, that I recall to this day, and I still share with people to this day, and it was an old professor of, of mine going back uh, many years, where uh, he would often say, if you're buying a book or a magazine or something to expand your mind, don't just buy the four or five things that you always buy. Pick up the thing that is completely something that you would never buy, never look into, have no interest in, and just give it five minutes. And I still, I don't always do it, but I still try and find myself doing that and experiencing different people's views and different uh, sides to the argument and a, a completely different industry or a completely different world to maybe the world that I spend most of my time in. And I couldn't say it's where I get most of my learning, but I certainly learn some of the more valuable elements from that. I probably learn more in other areas and the more core areas but that um, that 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 different type of research that that allowing it to come in instead of being closed off, I think ultimately um, helps speed up uh, your own thinking and your own abilities. Um, it doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> but, no, and you can't always do yeah everything all the time. the The analogy I like to bring up is sports. Yeah. So. Well, I, I love to play lots of sports, especially specifically racket sports. Yet there are so many other ones. That's called Gaelic football or you know, cricket and, and uh, um, highlight or whatever. So many other types yep. of sports. And the interesting thing is to go in and figure out what is genuinely interesting in it. Yeah. And what is the specific talent that's, that's really the, the genius component to it? Yeah. Because if some people have been playing cricket for long years, and many people are going to say it's a very boring sport watching grass grow, yet there are people playing it. So, all right, what's, what is it about that's interesting? So that's just within the paradigm of sports. 
But I think you need to do that, bring that kind of a mindset into other things like this, you know, the sixth book that your professor was talking about. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And we, we, we've had uh, an Olympic uh, coach speaking at one of the Think Global forums. Uh, and, he, you know, he waxes lyrical about the amount of time that it's spent and it all has to come down to that one or two minutes at the Olympic Games. And I'm, I'm remiss of that because we have another speaker who's going to be a two-time Olympian, if, you know, when, when, when Tokyo rolls around. And um, the, the learning, the experiences, the what you take in, um, that particular speaker who's, who's speaking at the Think Global Awards actually soon, coming up soon, um, it's it's amazing how much of that ultimately will determine how he performs in Tokyo. Mm. It's it's his makeup. It's what he's fed himself. It's what not just what he's eaten and how he's exercised and how he's trained, but it's what he's put into his mind uh, on an ongoing basis and what he's decided to focus on and what experiences he's experienced. And some of them have been very tough experiences, and some of them have been very hard experiences. Um, so uh, yeah. Bringing your whole self to work uh, is, um, is 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 a challenge, but it's also um, quite freeing, I suppose, from an, an authentic perspective, and ultimately, it helps people to really buy into the messaging more, doesn't it? Well, it certainly does. Uh, let me start with the. Uh, I want to go back to the health thing, the the yeah. sports thing, yeah. because I'm uh, I played eighteen years of rugger, and. Mm -hmm. This is a sport where you probably have to button it up and you know suck it up. You've got a broken arm, so be it. Just play, and you can sort of think that it's just about performance, and mm. and you don't let any emotions and vulnerabilities come in. Yet, in all of the chats I've had with with people who've played for the Lions, or for the national teams, and I've had the opportunity, a privilege to speak to many of them, when they're on a team when they're able as a team of hardcore rugby players, able to share vulnerabilities and, and the deep shit, hmm. those teams rock and roll. Because yeah. when you go to bat with them to, to mole and ruck one hard time more at the end of the game, bloody eared, that, that you're doing it with them, for them, and you know them. So that vulnerability that ability to share some emotional elements that you wouldn't expect. This is what I think it is bringing your whole self to work, even in the highest performing. And when you talk about these, these Olympians, you talk about those difficult times, these are also digging into the darkest side. Oh, I, I'll never make it. I'm not good enough. And confronting your fears and being aware of the things that maybe you're weaker on compensating with a great team because no individual gets to an Olympics without support. So what is your team and how do you get trust within that team? And, and, and really deep trust got your back trust, not just, Oh, I need you to win the gold medal because everybody wants to win the gold medal. Everybody starts off with a plan, how to win. Very few ever have a plan on how to deal with loss. And I think it's through those hardships that you actually learn the most. I don't say you go out to lose, but learning from losses is really the key thing. And so many people in business won't want to talk about that. Oh, well, I'm perfect. You know, oh, that wasn't my fault. Well, then how do you expect people to have responsibility if you're not prepared to own up to your issues, your, your losses and your own weaknesses? Yeah, and being truthful and true to yourself and embracing that, I think, really does. It, it's a new... It's a, I suppose it's not a new way of leadership, but it is maybe a, a refreshing visit to what's important as opposed to the sugar-coated uh, leadership maybe um, that we were talking about earlier when it's all about the stakeholder, you know. There's, there's one issue that we have when we make the translation from sports field to business world, which is that, especially in professional sports, well-being, sleeping well, diet, is integral. So mm. it's not something they add on. Oh, we need to add in a well-being slug yeah. or a seminar for well-being. <laughs> that it's 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 already embedded. It's in it's baked in. In business, we've tended to say, how many times, Simon, have you gotten into work? You know, let's say 
or even in an early morning Zoom. Hey, how did you sleep, Simon? Sorry, what are you asking me, Minter? Right, you know, in work, we don't do that. Oh, how's, how was last night? You know, do you have a nice set of drinks? We might do that because we can sort of push that off and, and at, at arm's distance. You won't really want to admit the big hangover unless it's with a really good friend. You probably wouldn't admit it to your boss. Yet that's the sort of realities that we need to get. I didn't sleep well. You know, I've been, I've been really worried about the presentation I had this afternoon. Okay, then what can we do to help you mentor to make the presentation good? You want to go off and take a nap? and not frown and judge because we know we've got your back. We as a team need to perform, but that's, we're very far from that in the professional space. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, it's very true. The, the wellness, the health and the self care and the, you know, mental health, for example, and physical health and well being and sleep, um, it has been, you know, people are starting to realize what an important element that is. You're absolutely correct. And it, yeah, the, 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 the parallel that you draw there is in the, prof in the professional sports world, it's built in because you can't perform at your ultimate, your, your ultimate level unless that's built in. It has to be part of the program. Whereas in business, you know, if it's almost lip service, I think is kind of where you're coming from in a lot of cases, not all cases, some people do this very well. But I'd say in the vast majority, people talk about stress and burnout and, and, and etc. So I wanted to I wanted to bring the conversation back around now if I can, because that's been fascinating. So thank you. Um, but I want to bring it back now a little bit to the, that human side, and the storytelling. Because I know that you you have uh, some great views on storytelling, but not just for the sake of telling a story. And I want to bring in the different types of media now as we sort of head towards the end of our time together here. As you well know, better than anybody, we've got podcasts and you're doing a lot of those and you, you speak as a professional speaker and you're an author. So you've got the written word, you've got audio. Uh, Clubhouse is the flavor at the moment or Twitter spaces or whatever. I'd be interested in your thoughts on, on the world of audio and audio books. But there's a multiple tiering, isn't there, of media platforms from video to live streaming to audio uh, to the written word um, to everything to instant messaging on various uh, IM channels uh, through down to the traditional media like television, radio, newspapers. Um, so when you think about storytelling across multiple media in today's world, it's probably more complex now than it's ever been. There's probably more money involved than there's ever been. But how do we bridge that gap with the, the, the human requirement to connect and to understand? Have you any views on that, uh, Minter? Well, I have a, a few. And mm. the first is to say it's orgasmically exciting to be a storyteller today. The, 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 abilities, the, the access to so many different tools, the options and the way you cut and splice. And, the, and, and you can, I mean, really just deliver your story in so many ways. Obviously, the challenge is you, you really need to know how to manage the tools, but you really have to have a creative flair and deep empathy. So when you are looking at a story and you thinking about, well, to, who, to whom am I delivering the, the message? What is that message? And then which media should I be using? Sometimes, you know, you can just go overboard. As you say, it can be rather expensive doing all these things. So you need to be rather focused. Why are you delivering this message? Which media are you going to choose? Which story do you want to tell? And um, so my, the, the, the experience I've, I've really enjoyed, I, as I say, I, I try to always walk the talk. So the story of the last ring home, which is something I spent 25 years researching to get to obviously those 130 people, but also read 300 books and then pull everything together and create the story. And I have put that story out in eight different media. And, and the fun part is to see how the media must adapt, you must adapt to the medium in order to tell the story with the justice that it deserves. And, and so taking video, for example, it's very easy to over-direct the video. And, and especially when you're not aware as an executive, 
the strength and what it takes to really do filmmaking. You should certainly hire people who are able to do it, but also let the creative juices flow. So one of the first things I would suggest for many people is um, become a videographer yourself. I don't care. I, when I, I remember I was at university and I listened to a, a, um, um, an economist, Lester Thoreau. And so I was maybe 18 years old. And, and he said, one of the most important talents that you have and the leaders of the future, you'll all be able to type fast. So back in the 1980s, well, that was tantamount to telling me I'd be a great secretary. Well, I took him to heart and I now type 80 words per minute, not always faultlessly, but fast. I, I, would, I would like to put videographer in the same bank because it, I think videography, video is such an important one. And the, the second thought I have is hire more creative profiles in your team. You talked about diversity just earlier. I'm a, you know, depending on the type of your team. So you have a team of two, this isn't, what, this isn't gonna work for you, probably not. But if you're in a large organization and, and you have that bandwidth, see why you couldn't introduce somebody who has a background in anthropology, sociology, photography, creative writing, filmmaking, for God's sake, because these types of profiles are, are, lit, are generally going to have, A, a creative eye, but also possibly have a higher index of empathy. And that's going to really help you in the storytelling and dispersing through the different media. Fascinating. And, uh, you know, absolutely uh, great poignant points there uh, when we th when we consider storytelling across the, the 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 multiple media that exists today and and continues i mean there's a new platform coming out every every time i i log on so uh, yeah and having those more creative people uh, maybe those people with a little bit more empathy uh, people that can maybe think a little bit differently it, it certainly helps propel that brand story a little bit better doesn't it it certainly does. One, one last thing to say about storytelling. Sure. Uh, so I, I've generally come to the um, belief that as the leader of a company, you also need to be considered the chief storyteller. And, and generally, there are two things. One is you need to inject some genuine passion each time you tell the story. It can't be just, oh, have I told you the story of, or, you know, <laughs> let me tell you the story yet one more time and, and feel bored about it. It needs to resonate within you. So this is the key second point. How does it resonate inside of you at a personal level? And, and not just say it with fun, say it with a smile, say it with energy, but actually even relate the personal elements of the story. So if I were to tell you the story of when I was running Redkin, well, um, I used to speak to the founder who retired, uh, Paula Kent, who's sadly passed, but I used to get to speak to her once a month, every morning, uh, early morning, and I would chat with her about what she did. And we, we exchanged a lot about Japan. And she, so when I was traveling, I was able to relate her story, but also why I was interested in Japan. Uh, I went to Japan every three months. And, and so for me, the reality is I studied the Second World War and the battle between the Americans and the Japanese. Essentially, that's what I studied in the book. Of course, there are many other countries, but so I, I wasn't afraid to talk about the personal story, which linked into Paula Kent, the founder of Redken, her story with Japan and how she felt that she was reincarnated, having been a Japanese person in a prior life. And so these are true stories. They, they resonated with me at a deep level. And I was even prepared to share my personal interests, my personal story to make it really relevant. And so when I would go across and say these stories, I didn't have to do any exercise, you know, pre-work or anything, breathing exercise to get that energy and, and feel it. So when you're telling stories, you got to be prepared to tell them a lot and make sure that they're personal, find ways to tap into your own personal history. Even if you're, you know, the big swinging CEO, you need to let go of some of your emotions. Allow it, your personal story. Allow your person and personality to be injected into the stories, 
and then you're going to come across a whole lot more powerfully. Minta, uh, that's been phenomenal. I really have enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, before we wrap it up, um, for anybody who's interested in finding out more about where they can get the book, uh, maybe booking you to speak for them or to, uh, to get involved with their organization, where's the best place that people can find you? My hub um, and Google has been friendly to my weird name, minterdial.com. There's uh, links to the books, the films, uh, how to hire me for speaking. Of course, the books are, the, the You Lead just came out as an audiobook. So for those of you who, who like audiobooks, we just mentioned audio before, uh, spoken by Gary Bennett. This is the first audiobook that wasn't done by me. So it was fun to, or interesting to hear somebody else narrate my story and talk with him about that experience. And otherwise, um, yeah, I'm out on many social media, as I mentioned before, usually with the handle M-D-I-A-L, but otherwise Minterdial and should lead you to numerous, uh, maybe not so many necessary pages on Google. <laughs> well, that's great. Thank you so much indeed, Minter. Um, I want to I thank you for taking the time to be on uh, Vista Talks today. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to speak to you um it's fantastic maybe we maybe we get you back and we talk in the future because there's a whole side of podcasting that we didn't really get to um so maybe we'll save that for another day but um you know we've talked about an awful lot today uh, we've talked about empathy we've talked about bringing your authentic self to work we've talked about the importance of language and culture uh, we've discussed you know how you fit in being a uh, a, an executive in today's world, the difference in the, the media channels that are available, and also how you find time to, to write books and produce movies and everything in between. So it's been a, an absolute pleasure. So thank you, Minter. Thank you, Simon. I've enjoyed it very much. It's, it's always fun to have these sort of wide ranging topics, because I think at the end of the day, life is messy. Being one track is, is great for some things. But I, I really think we all need to be able to explore our full selves. And so what this conversation has been about, Simon, in my feeling, is about exploring our full selves and allowing that to happen, even if we're talking in a business environment like Fista Talks. We, we've expressed some emotions. We've gotten into a whole bunch of topics and allowing ourselves to show that we can be more than just a performing individual at work. And on that note, I'm going to thank Minter Dial for joining us. Please do follow him on all the social media channels and look up MinterDial.com for, for all the information about everything that he does and that he's involved in. Um, I want to say uh, thank you to everybody who's listening. Uh, if you've listened uh, as this has gone out or if you listen to it on replay, we do appreciate it. And please join us soon for another Vista Talks where we'll be discussing more interesting discussions with interesting people from all around the world. Thank you, Minta. Thank you.